Well, we're in Luke chapter 23 this morning, and we're going to continue on in the, the just powerful and central narratives of the Bible, of the, the, the trial and the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25 are the second part of the trial of Jesus. We covered the first part of the trial of Jesus last week, which is his appearance before, his being brought before uh, the, the high priests and the Jewish rulers, and they are accusing him in their own right, and they get at the claims of him claiming to be the Son of God, and they call it blasphemy, but they cannot execute him, which is what they're trying to do because they don't have the authority under Roman law to do that. And so they have to go from their own little tribunal to a more official Roman proceeding so that they can attempt to persuade a Roman governor that Jesus is worthy of death. And so what we're reading this morning also appears in Mark chapter 15, John chapter 18, and Matthew chapter 27. So please, if you would, stand with me uh, to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning. From Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the Christ of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man whom had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we begin in verse 1 with Pilate 
with Jesus before Pilate. But it's important in looking at some of the other passages in the Gospels to, to, to put some other things into the narrative here that are mentioned elsewhere that help to enrich this picture of Jesus before Pilate. In Matthew, it tells us that the Jewish rulers and elders had gathered together and in a council as to how to kill Jesus. So I remind you from last week that there is nothing... Uh, objective about this proceeding. This is a proceeding that has one reason and one purpose, which is to drive Jesus to his death. They have been trying to kill Jesus for years, and now they believe they're very close, and they're careful in their strategy for how they might get rid of Jesus. In Mark, it says that Jesus was in bonds, and so Jesus had been tied by his hands, and you think of them leading him around as a prisoner. The Son of God, bound as a prisoner, allowing himself to be bound for our sake. And he is brought by them to Pilate and to his courtyard and to his headquarters. And in John, it is important to point out that he says the most amazing thing. That the Jews, in their desire to maintain their ceremonial cleanness, will not go into Pilate's headquarters. Because if they go into Pilate's headquarters, they will defile themselves and will not be able to eat the Passover. So they call Pilate out. And the irony of that should not be lost on us. That they are in the midst of a murderous plot, but they're worried about ceremonially causing themselves to be unclean. And so who is Pilate? We have to ask this question. Pilate is a central part of this narrative. Pilate was a Roman governor, the Roman governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD during this period where Jesus is alive and ministering. And so when they bring Pilate to the courtyard or outside of Pilate's headquarters and he comes out to meet them, they change their argument to Pilate. Because they know that their argument that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God will mean nothing to Pilate. He doesn't care about the religious or the theological arguments of these people. And so they bring an entirely different set of accusations against Jesus. And they begin to say that he is an insurrectionist. Or Chapter 23, verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so they try to set up Jesus as a political rival to Caesar, one who's trying to set up a kingdom inside of a kingdom and overthrow Roman rule. And in John, it talks about uh, Pilate taking Jesus into a private audience. So they accuse him of this and many other things, and they are vehemently and loudly and riotously accusing Jesus of everything they can accuse him of. And Pilate is amazed that Jesus does not respond to their comments or to their, to their accusations. He is silent before his accusers at this point. And so Pilate takes Jesus into a private audience, I'm sure to get away from all the loudness and craziness of the people shouting at him and just to clear his mind and say, who actually is this person in front of me? And in John chapter 18, it's very interesting and important to read the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. And this is where Jesus says, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he talks to Pilate about the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. And he's not at all quiet about that. And Pilate knows something about the ministry of Jesus. And at least what he knows is that this man has not been setting up a political kingdom. 
We talk about that often in this church, that the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. And spiritual things are no less real than physical things. They are just different. And the kingdom of God is different. What Jesus is doing is different than what the Jews are trying to accomplish and what the Romans are trying to accomplish. But coming out of this private meeting and on through the rest of this narrative, in every one of the Gospels, Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. He has not actually done anything that they are accusing him of. And so he comes out here in verse 4 and states that. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And that's a powerful statement. When a judge comes and says, I find no guilt in this person, a not guilty verdict is brought back. We know what normally happens in courtrooms in our, in our time. It makes no difference to the crowd that's out there. They are pressing for Jesus' death. He says, I find no guilt in this man, and they keep on, and they keep on hard. And they say, but he stirs up people and is teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. And when he hears Galilee, like any good government bureaucrat, he thinks, I can pass the buck to somebody else. And so we can have a change of venue because Herod is in town. And so I'm going to transfer him to Herod's jurisdiction. And that's what he does. So who is Herod? Important. So Herod is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who was the ruler prior to him. Herod Antipas is a, a tetrarch, which sounds like a big, important title, but what that really means is he is ruler of only a quarter part of an area. So he's like a, a petty prince or a, a, some lesser ruler, and he is the king, if you will, of Galilee, which is a very small area and a, and a few areas around it. But he's an important person in the Gospels, uh, mainly because he is the murderer of John the Baptist. And we know of his immorality because John the Baptist accused him to his face of his sexual immorality, and he had him jailed, and then later uh, had him beheaded. And so this is the same ungodly and immoral Herod. But he is the ruler over this area surrounding Galilee, and so Pilate transfers Jesus in bonds with all of these accusers over to Herod. And so it's interesting. It says in verse 8 that Herod was interested in seeing him. It says he was very glad to see him. But why did he want to see Jesus? He wanted to see Jesus because he thought he might see a show. He might see something amazing. Like He wanted to see a miracle. This guy's famous, apparently, for doing miracles, so maybe I can see something amazing here today. He clearly has no desire to listen to Jesus or to believe anything that he has to say, but perhaps he will do something for him to maybe cause him to be released. A, a ruler always looking for a bribe, always looking for something that would cause him to uh, actually that person humble themselves before Herod and let Herod do something for them. But what happens is when Jesus comes into Herod's presence, all the accusers come, they continue to berate him and accuse him of everything but he says absolutely nothing. In verse 10, it says, The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Herod questions Jesus at length, asking him whatever he's going to ask him to try to ascertain who Jesus is and what he is doing. They mock him. They clothe him again with kingly garments, whatever that means. They are arraying him with a king's garment to mock him, saying that he's not really what he says he is, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make fun of him. And they continue on with this. 
But Jesus says nothing. He is silent before his accusers, and he is silent before Herod and gives Herod nothing of what he hoped that he might see from him. But it is interesting that Herod does not hold him as he held John the Baptist or others, which he could have done. But instead, he finds no guilt in Jesus and sends Jesus back to Pilate. And so Pilate, in verse 13, calls everybody back together. It says, he calls them together, the chief priest, the rulers, and the people. And so Pilate assembles the mob himself. He gets everybody back together, the whole crew. And he says to them a number of things. He says to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him, before you behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So this, in verse 15, is the third time in this passage that Jesus has been declared not guilty, that nothing of guilt can be found in him. He has done nothing deserving of death. And when this third round of not guilty is declared, in Matthew it says that a riot begins. The people are stirred up in their frenzy and their hatred of Jesus into where it is a, a riot about to begin. And we have seen quite a bit of rioting in our time in the past few years. We know what that means. People going over the edge of anger and together pressing to do something that they would never do alone, whatever it may be. And in this case, as a group gathered together, they are impassioned to see Jesus die. And Pilate begins to be concerned about this crowd, and it says in Mark that he wishes to satisfy the crowd. And so part of the way that they both sort of arrive at a possible way to see this, this situation ended is a Passover tradition. Apparently, it's a Roman Passover tradition that they both were aware of because in some of the Gospels, it seems that, that, the, that the desire for the release of Barabbas comes from the people and others, it seems to come from Pilate, but they both are aware of this tradition that they have at Passover to release uh, a, a prisoner because of the occasion. And so in verse 18, they all cry out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. We should not miss the irony of the fact that Barabbas is accused of, rightly, the very thing that they're accusing Jesus of, insurrection, that he's trying to overthrow the government. He's trying to do something that is undermining Caesar. And we have one person that actually did it and one person that didn't do it, and they would rather have the actual insurrectionist because this has nothing to do with insurrection. This has to do with a grudge match and an absolute hatred for Jesus, and we'll see later the reason, the real reason, why they are doing this and it has nothing to do with insurrection but Pilate wants to release Jesus so he addresses them again in verse 20 desiring to release Jesus but he is weak he has a place of authority given to him by the government but he is weak he's supposed to be a judge but he will not stand up to the people and he will not do what truly needs to be done and so in verse 21 is where it reaches its crescendo. Crucify him, crucify him. They just come straight out and say it. 
all, all, the, all the, the, the pageantry of this being a trial or anything like this, this is down to a mob that wants Jesus dead and a governor that's either going to stop it or not. And so they start chanting, crucify him, crucify him. There is a bloodlust and a hatred that is throughout this group of people. And we know that it is pressed by Satan himself desiring to see the Son of God put to death. But again, in verse 22, why? What evil has he done? This is the fifth time that the innocence of Jesus is declared in this passage. I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. No guilt deserving of death. But in verse 23, they are urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevail. It's important looking across, again, the span of the Gospels and seeing what did Pilate know at this situation. Five times he's declared in one way or another that Jesus is innocent. And we know from Matthew chapter 27, which if you're interested, you can turn over there. I'm going to read some verses from Matthew chapter 27 because it's so powerful and so interesting. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 18, and this is also repeated in Mark. It says that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew in his own heart, his own witness of his conscience says, they have delivered this man up, not for any righteous reason, but because of envy. They are envious of him. They are concerned that he is unseating them religiously, politically, and after the clearing out of the temple, economically. He's costing them money and something on every single front, and they are trying to bring him here to have me kill him because they are envious of him. He is aware of exactly what is going on. He's a discerning person, an interior witness. As an exterior witness, the next verse is fascinating. Verse 19, Matthew 27, 19. Besides, while he was sitting on his judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, quote, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Wow. Get that picture. Sitting on his seat, uh, Pilate, your, your wife's got a message for you. Not now. Like, this is not the time. I, I have got my hands full. All right, all right. And she comes back. No, your wife has got a message for you. You've got to listen to this. Okay, what is it? And this is the message. And this guy is sitting here in silence, in bonds before him, in this riotous, envious mob crying for his death. And she has seen some vision or dream of the innocence of this person and felt so compelled that she was willing to go and interrupt this occasion to make sure he knew this. This is an exterior motivation for Pilate, something outside of himself to, uh, to warn him of what he is getting ready to do, this righteous man. And then, of course, the third thing that Pilate knew as a judge is that there's no evidence to do this. We've tried two different judges to, to ascertain evidence that this person is guilty, and there is no evidence of his guilt. And so interior, exterior, guilt, there's, there's no evidence. There's nothing that can cause a verdict to come back of guilt towards Jesus. And so when we go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 through 26, just a few verses later, it says this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. That is powerful. 
and scary. Just, just one of those things that makes you just shudder when you hear it. Apparently had somebody bring out a bowl of water so he could actually wash his hands in front of these people in a ceremonial way that he might be innocent of this man's blood. And they call out, may his blood be on us and on our children and counted against us. They have just gone into pure madness in this situation out of their desire to see Jesus killed. And they call for the release of Barabbas and Barabbas is released. And Barabbas is a symbol of substitutionary atonement. We talked about this last week and in weeks prior, that there are so many ways. When we first come to salvation, it is so simple, and it is that simple, that we understand that we are sinners, and we need someone to forgive us of our sins and take this guilt away from us. And when we confess our sins to Jesus, and we believe that he was the Son of God and that he is the Son of God, that we are forgiven of our sins. And salvation is truly that simple. It is by grace alone through faith alone. But the longer that we grow in our discipleship and the more that we understand the work of Jesus, we begin to see that salvation is enormously complex and that it was gained at a great price. And part of the complexity of it is this idea of substitution, that it came to us, salvation came to us by Jesus being substituted in our place. And Barabbas is an interesting symbol of substitution. He is being accused of and is guilty of exactly what Jesus is being accused of. But he is set free and Jesus goes and dies in his stead. And so the irony of this situation should not be lost on us. In that the accusing people and the judge are both guilty. Both of them have tried to ceremonially distance themselves from what is actually happening, whether it be by standing outside or washing their hands in a, in, a, in, a, in a bowl of water, but neither one of those things can actually distance themselves from the wickedness of what is happening. And that the accused is actually the innocent party in the midst of all of this. And the condemned Jesus is the only one who can actually wash away the sins or cleanse the soul of guilt of any of these people. It's a shocking situation. And so what I want to do here by way of application of this passage and Jesus being declared innocent over and over and over and over in one passage, we have to ask the question, what is, the, what is the significance of the innocence of Jesus? Because obviously this is significant if it has been presented so many times in so many different ways. So I'm going to give you three things that I think, at least, that are greatly important about the innocence of Jesus. The first thing is that the innocence of Jesus speaks to the holiness and the divinity of Jesus. The innocence of Jesus speaks to the holiness and the divinity of Jesus. Now what I mean by that is if you look all over the scriptures, but a few central verses. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a complete statement, and it speaks to every man, woman, and child that have ever lived that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 14 says this in a more extended way. Psalm, one, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And it's true. None of us 
walk in righteousness. None of us are right before the Lord. We are all sinners. There is only one that ever broke this mold, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only one that is set apart in holiness, beginning from the virgin birth to his ascension into heaven. He is the only one that has ever done this because he is the Lord God himself. He is divine. He is the Son of God. Many different religions and forms of teaching would have us get around this. And one that really bothers me is so often and regularly taught by the Roman Catholic Church, and it's the idea of saints. They have saints there, which is very confusing to people that don't understand the Bible because the Bible talks about saints. Well, in the Bible, saints are those that are set apart or holy because of their belief in Jesus Christ. We are different because of the work of Christ in us. But the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on saints is very different. It's that there is a special and small group of people that are largely so godly in and of themselves that they only needed a little bit of help from Jesus to get into heaven. But when they got to heaven, they came into heaven with so much of their own merit, is what they call it, or goodness, that they're able to then give some of their goodness to other people to help them get into heaven. And this is why they pray to saints that I can pray to this person, and though I get some help from Jesus, I'll also get some help from this saint. This is, this is a blasphemous position, because this is saying that there are other people in this world that are so good and so righteous that they are also somewhat of a savior. They can help us in salvation in a way like Jesus. And so Jesus is sort of one, or the, the greatest in the constellation of the saints, and this is absolutely not what is being taught by the scriptures. The scriptures are teaching us that there is only one, the divine son of God, who has ever lived a perfect life and only he can give to us his righteousness. Secondly, there is no enlightenment. There is no person that can become so wise or so knowledgeable as to rise above the human condition and to, to learn their way, if you will, out of the guilt and the death of humanity and the enslavement to sin. We will never escape the enslavement of sin and the bondage of death apart from new life coming to us in Christ, being born again. There is no materialist that can buy their way out of the human condition. There is no amount of houses or boats or cars or vacations that you can buy that can cause you to forget the guilt that will weigh down your soul. There's no hedonist that can take enough trips or find enough pleasure to forget the condition of the heart. Only Jesus is set apart in his holiness, and only his perfect righteousness can be given to us by faith. And so the innocence of Jesus speaks to his holiness and his separated state. Secondly, is the innocence and perfection of Jesus sets him up to be the Lamb of God. The innocence and perfection of Jesus sets him up to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to, I want to read to you a, verse, a couple of verses from 1 Peter. Again, we've talked about this. It's one of the other beautiful aspects of salvation that Jesus has presented as a lamb. It's an Old Testament image that was given to us intentionally as one that is a substitution, but the lamb was an inadequate substitution. But Jesus, or I should say, the Lord is very clear in the Old Testament that the people are not to bring the, what we would naturally bring, the lamb that we don't want to use because it's lame or its hair is all messed up or it's the deformed one. We're going to give that one to Jesus. But God is very clear. You will bring to me 
the most perfect lamb that you have. It's going to be a right sacrifice, the best that you can possibly find. That's what you will offer. And so Jesus, in his innocence and perfection, is set up as the lamb of God, the final, ultimate, true satisfaction for uh, the, the wrath of God, which we will get to in a moment. So we're in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he foreknew before the foundation of the world, but was made known, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so Jesus is presented here, as he is in many other places, as a lamb, but it's specific here, a lamb without blemish or spot. His innocence is what makes him that way. He is perfect in his character and in his holiness. And even though they have sought after him for three years, dogging him, tailing him, sending people constantly to inspect every word he says and trying to craft questions to trip him up and cause him to fall, they can find nothing to accuse him of because he is truly innocent and there's nothing to find there. He is perfect in all of his ways. And so he is the Lamb of God. He can be what we're going to talk about next because of his innocence. So the third thing is one of these important Bible words, that in his innocence, Jesus is qualified to be our propitiation for sin. In his innocence, Jesus is qualified to be our propitiation for sin. Now, this is not a word that a a theological person made up. This is three times used in the Bible for Jesus in the nature of his sacrifice. And so it's important for us to understand and define these Bible words or we'll read right past them and be like, what is that? I have no idea what that means. And you just missed something very, very important. So there's three places in the Bible where, in the New Testament, where Christ is described as our propitiation for sin. And we're going to carry this over into next week, but we're going to begin it here. Romans 3.23-26, through 26, uh, a verse we just cited. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. And in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4, 10 and 11. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then in his great love, God sent Jesus to be a propitiation for our sins. And flipping back just one page to John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 again. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what does it mean? that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins, sent from God for this purpose. Ligon Duncan describes it this way. 
the turning away of the wrath of God through the just judgment of sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to read that again. Propitiation is the turning away of the wrath of God through the just judgment of sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So only Jesus in his innocence can fill this situation. So if God is going to send someone to be judged, it must be someone that is not already under judgment. And so Jesus is the only one who qualifies in this way. And so he is sent for our condemnation, that the wrath of God might be poured out on Jesus. And I understand that the wrath of God has never been a popular subject at any point in time in the world, but especially not so today. Because people tend to see the wrath of God as arbitrary, because we no longer tend to hold to any form of absolute truth, and so it seems like any moral standards are just arbitrary standards, and so God's judging anyone as an arbitrary judgment. And that kind of carries over into the fact of thinking about God's wrath as being like our anger. And we know how out of control our anger can be and how arbitrary and wrong our anger is. But we look at the, the anger and the wrath of God and we see something very different. Because the wrath of God is related to his perfect justice. And we understand the goodness of justice. You and I have a sense of justice in our hearts because we are created in the image of God. Your dog at home, your cat at home, our rabbit in its pen has no sense of justice because it's not created in the image of God. It just goes about its day and does its thing, and that's what it does. But we have a sense of justice because we're created in the image of God, and we understand the need for justice. But the problem with that is that when the standard of justice is turned around and applied to us, it becomes a serious problem because we also ought to be judged because if we are going to be just in looking at ourselves, we have broken God's laws and we've lived in rebellion. And so going on with what Ligon Duncan says about propitiation, even though God is a God of infinite love, he does not show mercy at the expense of justice. Let me say that again. Even though God is a God of infinite love, he does not show mercy at the expense of justice. And so what happens is God is going to meet all the demands of justice and he is going to pour out his great, merciful, gracious love upon us. And so how does this happen? He sends Jesus. And Jesus, who is innocent and worthy, he lays down his life and he takes the justice of God upon himself for the sins of humanity. But then God forgives us because the, just, the justice of God has been met. So through Christ, we can be forgiven. And if it weren't for two weeks from now, when we talk about the resurrection, this would be the saddest, most tragic story of all time. But what happens is God raises Jesus from the dead. Amen. And he comes back to life. He overcomes death. And so justice is met, salvation is given, and there is eternal life. And this is a glorious salvation. And there's much to learn here. If you're like, man, I don't understand anything that he's saying here. I'm doing the very best that I can to explain this. And I encourage you to come back and look at it again because it's worth looking at again. And it's worth understanding because the more you understand this, the more you will sing these songs with a greater gusto and the more joy will be in your life because you will see what God is doing. He's just and he's merciful and he offers eternal life. And this is propitiation, that God 
and his infinite love does not show mercy at the expense of justice. And so let me close with this as we reach the end of the trial of Jesus and transition to the cross next week. We will talk a little bit more about the propitiation of God through Christ uh, next week. But I want you to see in these passages that Jesus really did stand before Pilate. He really did. There really were Jewish rulers and people that mocked him and spat upon him. And as we're going to see much, much more next week, that he really was falsely accused and mocked. And he really did sit there in silence for you and for me. And because of our sins and knowing that there was no other way, if we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane a few, other, few weeks ago, that there was no other way that our salvation could be accomplished. And so he took these things upon himself. And so I urge you this morning, if you are unbelieving, do not harden your heart. This passage is full of hard-hearted people, people that had decided, I am done with Jesus. I want him out of my life, and I will do anything to get Jesus out of my life. And if you can feel the hardness of heart creeping up, I encourage you, as the Psalms say, as you hear and feel the conviction of the Lord upon your heart today, do not harden your heart. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Respond to the conviction that comes upon you by the Holy Spirit. And if you have been a Christian for many years, I encourage you to have these things cause you to rejoice. That you look at these things in a fresh new way, seeing what Jesus has done for you, and that you might rejoice in what God has done for you. That you would, in a fresh and new way, give thanks for the salvation of Jesus and for the complexity of it and for the gravity of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you as the Son of God, as divine, as the only one that has ever been innocent the only one that has ever come and lived and died in this world without sin. And that your enemies, as much as they hated you, they could not in any court or tribunal or in any way find any guilt in you. And so they just burst out in their hatred of crucify him, crucify him. They wanted you gone. But in doing that, they did not understand that they were in fact fulfilling the will of God and in fact bringing about the propitiation the sacrifice that would meet the wrath of God, that there might be salvation by grace through faith. And this is a joyous thing. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand these things. In so many ways, these things are beyond us. That's why they're described with so many different analogies and described in different ways, because the salvation of God is a great salvation. It is a complex and a joyful salvation, but it is one that is accomplished through the grace and the love and the mercy of Almighty God. And so, Lord Jesus, we love you today, and I pray for your work in our hearts that we would leave rejoicing and that there would be no one that leaves with a hard heart today, and there'd be no one that walks out of this place shaking their fist at God today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.